You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Bhutan on the Calvary Brighton Podcast. Now, I'm, I'm not going to take a show of hands, but some of you might be old enough to remember the old Art Linkletter show. Uh, later on became kids say, say the darndest things. But he, he, would, he would interview kids and ask them questions. And so one time he, he asked this little boy, he says, well, I hear you want to be a pilot when you grow up. And the little boy says, yeah. And he says, okay, well, well let's say you're, 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 you're a pilot and you're flying this huge jetliner over the ocean and all of a sudden you lose both engines. What would you say? Little boy thinks about it and he says, I would say, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. <laughs> well, isn't that true? I mean, haven't you noticed that, that it's usually when things get bad, it's usually when the bottom drops out, that that's when people cry out to God. That's when people, you know, make changes in their lives. That's when people get right. Well, before us this morning, here in these chapters, is a group known as the Philistines, the enemy of God's people, and yet we see that, that frankly, they wanted nothing to do with God, that is, until things got bad, until the bottom dropped out, and then all of a sudden, they cry out to God. They turn to God. But then, as soon as things get better, as soon as the pain stops, well, now they want nothing to do with God again. They've turned their backs on God. And that's why we've titled this message, When Things Get Bad, People Get Right, or Do They? So now as we look at chapter 5, we're going to see that the things get bad for the Philistines. Chapter 5, verse 1, it says, And when the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it to, uh, from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up be beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him up in, in its place. And when they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the, on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priest of Dagon and all the people who enter the, the, the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the people, sorry, when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together the lords of the Philistines, and they said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of, the, of, of God of Israel. And, and, but <clears throat> after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And, and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. And as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out and said, they have brought around to us the ark of God to, uh, of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and, and gathered to, to all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of God of Israel and, and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city, and the hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven." So there you have it. You just finished chapter 5. 
Now, remember, last week, what we saw was, was, that, was that the army of Israel went out in battle against the Philistines, but then they sensed that, that God's presence had left them, that God was no longer there. And, and they ended up losing that battle. So then they go out to battle again, but this time they tried to manipulate God into fighting for them. So what they did was they, they brought the ark of God into the battlefield. So they're basically treating the ark of God like it was a, a lucky rabbit's foot, a, a good luck charm. But their luck runs out, they lose the battle, then the ark gets captured by the Philistines. And now in this chapter, they bring the, the, the ark into their god, the, the, the temple of their god called, called Dagon. Now Dagon, by the way, was, a, was an idol that was like, shaped in the image of like half man, half fish. Yes, you're right. He was a he was a merman, and so they you know this 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 god half man half fish, and in fact archaeologists have uncovered coins with the inscription of this like fish god on their coins in that part of the world. Listen, in that day it was believed that if, that if you conquered a people group, that you basically conquered their god in the process. That if you conquered the people, then you must have conquered their god because their god just proved he wasn't strong enough to protect his people. So if you conquered the people, you conquered their God. So what you'd do is you would take their God, their, their idol, and bring it into your temple and put it before your God, as if it was surrendering to your God. It was sort of a way of saying, you know what? Our God is stronger than your God. Our God can beat up your God. So they bring the Ark of the Covenant into their temple. But then the next day, they come in, and Dagon, their god, has fallen to the ground. He's on its face, like, like prostate, like a position of worship before the, the true and living God. It's as if their god was worshiping the true and living God. So they pick him up, and they're like, Dagon it? And they, and, they, and, they, and they put him back in his place. Well, then the next day, they come in, and he's back on the ground, but this time, his head and his hands have been cut off. Now, listen. This is not the first time, and it will not be the last time that the, enemy, uh, the enemies of God think they've conquered God. In fact, if you go to the British Museum, uh, you'll find a, a, a bronze medal with an inscription on it to the Roman Emperor Diocletian. The inscription says, to Diocletian who destroyed Christianity. Who destroyed Christianity? Now, Diocletian in his day thought that he had destroyed Christianity. He had ordered that every Bible be burned because he, he, he thought that by destroying their Bibles, by destroying their scripture, you could destroy their religion. You could destroy Christianity. Well, 25 years after Diocletian, a new emperor comes on the scene. His name is Constantine. Constantine orders the copies of the Bible. He orders 50 copies of the Bible to be printed at the government's expense. He didn't destroy Christianity, and he didn't destroy the Bible. It reminds me also of the, the French philosopher Voltaire. Voltaire made it his, his passion to, to try to destroy the faith of as many Christians as he possibly could, really, to, to destroy Christianity. In fact, Voltaire was quoted saying that, that, that within a hundred years of his death, the Bible would be destroyed, the Bible would disappear, and Christianity would die. It would be nothing but a distant memory. Now here's what's ironic. The ironic thing was that 50 years after Voltaire's death, the Geneva Bible Institute purchased Voltaire's house and then turned it into a printing press from which they printed thousands of copies of Bibles. Christianity did not die. It was not destroyed. And so now here the enemy thinks that they have conquered God. 
And they're about to discover that, that although they, they conquered the people of God, the God of the people was about to conquer them. And so it says that the people of Ashdod break out with tumors. And so now all of a sudden they're playing hot potato with, with the ark. It's like, like nobody wants it. They couldn't get rid of it fast enough. So the people of Ashdod, they ship it off over to the people, the, the Philistine city of Gath. But then it gets there, they break out with tumors, they get rid of it, and now they ship it off to the Philistine city of Ekron. Now, by the way, chapter 6 in just a moment seems to imply that, that perhaps this was, was, was some sort of a plague that was being transmitted, being carried by rats. You know, much like, much like the, the bubonic plague of the 1800s that spread through, through Europe. And it was spread through, through rats, really more through, the, through the, uh, the fleas that were on the rats. Now that's interesting, especially when you consider this verse in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 17, that says, Those who consecrate and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following the one in the midst of those who eat fle the flesh of pigs and rats and other abominable things, they will meet their end together, declares the Lord. So that verse is saying that those who eat, you know, pork, those who eat pigs and, and, and rats, uh, they're, they're going to die. They're going to meet their end. Now, what it's talking about was the Philistines. It's talking about pagans and, and who, when, when, when they worship their pagan idols, they worship their pagan gods, what they do is they sacrifice pigs and they sacrifice rats. And, and, and then after they sacrifice those animals to their pagan idols, they then eat the meat of the pigs and eat the meat of the rats. Now, what's interesting is, you know, we know that the Jewish people keep a kosher diet, right? Now, among other things in that kosher diet mentioned in Leviticus chapter 11, there's a number of things in Leviticus chapter 11 that if you're kosher, you're not to eat, among which are not only pork or pigs, but also rats. You're like, rats, darn, I was, I was looking forward to, you know, some, some rat burger, You know, so, but you know, you know, you're kosher, so you wouldn't eat these things. Now, what's interesting with that is, is that is that Dr. S. H. Kellogg points out that that during the spread of the bubonic plague in, in in Europe, as it was spreading all throughout Europe, it seemed that that Jewish people, because of their kosher diet, you know, they weren't eating pork and, and other other things, they weren't getting sick. Now, meanwhile, many of the other Europeans who ate pork and ate, ate other things, they were getting sick. They looked at the Jews who were not getting sick, and they started accusing the Jewish people of perhaps engineering this plague because they were the only ones not getting sick. No, they weren't engineering it. It was their, their kosher diet that God gave them in Leviticus chapter 11 that was protecting them. Because if you're kosher, you not only don't eat those things, you stay as far away from those things as you possibly can because they're not clean. They're not kosher. And so it's, it spared them. So now be that as it may, here in this passage, we see that, that the Philistines are, are, are getting sick. There's this plague. It's like everywhere the ark goes, people are breaking out in tumors. Now, before we, we get all excited and, and, and think, well, maybe, maybe these tumors were the bubonic plague, uh, the, the word tumor there, it's, it's the Hebrew word opel. It, it can be translated mound or boil, uh, but, but really, it's not necessarily a tumor, like in the way that we would think of today, like, like a cancerous tumor. Literally, this word could be translated tumor in the private parts. Tumors in your private parts. It's pronounced in Hebrew, ew. <laughs> Literally, it could be translated hemorrhoids. 
Literally, it was like they were thinking, you know what? This, this, the, the, the God of Israel, the Ark of the Covenant, it has become a pain in the butt. They're breaking out with hemorrhoids or, or tumors or whatever it was. But as an end result, it says at the end of chapter 5, it says that the cry of the city went up to heaven. In other words, for the Philistines, things were getting so bad that they cry out to God, like so many of us do when, when the bottom drops out. And now with that, we get into chapter 6. In the first 12 verses, we see that the harder things get, the harder the Philistines get. Chapter 6, verse 1, The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines for seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, and they said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us uh, with what we shall send it to its place. And they said, if you send away the ark of God uh, of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him uh, a guilt offering. Then you, 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 you will be healed and, and it'll be known to you as to why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, what is the guilt offering that, that we shall return with him? And they answered, five golden tumors. Now, I cannot get the 12 days of Christmas out of my head. Five golden tumors. You know, anyway, so, you know, but they answered, you know, five golden tumors, five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel and perhaps he will lighten his hand from off of you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and, and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which uh, there has never come a yoke and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. And then take the ark of the Lord and place it on the, on the cart and put in a box at its side the figures of gold which you are returning with him as a guilt offering. Then, it shall, then send it off and, and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up the way of its own to its own land to Bet Shemesh, then it is he who has done this great harm. But if not... Then we shall know that it is not his hand that has struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so. They, they took the two milk cows and, and, and yoked them to the cart and shut up the, their, their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of the tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Bet Shemesh along, uh, along one highway, lolling as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went up after them as far as the border of Bet Shemesh. Now listen, we, we, we've all met people, we all know people who, who when the bottom drops out, when things get really hard, that's when they cry out to the Lord. That's when they're all like, you know, uh, you know God, if, if, if you just get me out of this, I mean, just, just rescue me. If, if you get me out of this, I promise, I swear, I'll, I'll do anything. I'll even go to church. In fact, I'll even give to the poor. In fact, I'll even give to the church. Just get me out of this. I'll do anything. And then sure enough, God, God rescues them. God gets them out of this. And then what happens? Do they keep their end of the deal? Do they go to church? Do they give to the poor? Do they give to the church? No. No. As, as soon as the pain goes away, they go right back to the way things used to be. And that is exactly what happens with the Philistines. 
So God strikes them with, with, with a plague or, or with tumors or with hemorrhoids or whatever it was, but many are in pain and many others are, are dying left and right. So finally, they're like, you know what? We got to get rid of this ark. So they come up with this plan to send it back. They're like, you know what? We're going to put it on a Tesla, like a self-driving cart. <laughs> you know, we're just going to get this, you know, this milk cart with these cows and, and, and just see if it all by itself just goes back home. Which is, you know, and, and, and you know, maybe, maybe this will make God happy. So it kind of seems like, like they were hedging their bets. Because on the one hand, they're like, you know what? Maybe this is a judgment from God. Maybe, maybe God's angry with us. And so we, we, we need to offer a sacrifice. We need to do something to appease their God. But on the other hand, they're like, you know what? Maybe it's not God. Maybe it's not a judgment. Maybe it's just a coincidence. So they're kind of hedging their bets. In fact, Elvis Presley, I read, did this toward the end of his life. Towards the end of his life, Elvis Presley was, was wearing all these gold chains, and each one of them had a different religious symbol. So he had a cross for Christianity. He had a Star of David for Judaism. He had a, a, a crescent moon for Islam. He had a, a Hindu god and this thing and that thing and the other. And one day, a, a friend of his named Pat Boone asked him, he said, Elvis, why are you wearing all these different religious symbols? And Elvis answered and he said, he said, you know what? I just want to make sure that my bases are covered. I want to hedge my bets. Well, that's the Philistines. They're like, you know, it could be God, so we better appease him. But you know what? It might not be God. It could, do, could be just a, a coincidence. So they say in verse 9, hey, you know what? What we're going to do, we'll, we'll, we'll put it on this cart, send it off on its way, and watch. If it happens to go back home, goes back to the Jewish people, goes back to Beit Shemesh, then we'll know that it was God. If not, well, no, there's nothing to worry about. It was just a coincidence. No big deal. Let me ask you, do you know anybody like this? Is there someone in your life who, who, who's, who's completely turned their back on God? You know, they're, 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 they're completely living in outright sin, outright rebellion, and, 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 and God in their heart has even warned them that if they don't repent, if they don't stop what they're doing, they're going to reap the consequences. But they, but they ignore it. They just, they just, they just turn a blind eye and they, and they keep doing what they're doing. They keep living the way they're living. And, and then sure enough, they reap the consequences. Maybe they end up in jail because of what they're doing. Or, 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 or maybe they, they get some kind of a disease that's related to the way they're living, their, their lifestyle. Or maybe they get in an accident or this happens or that happens. And yet it's like no matter how bad things get, no matter how hard things are, it's like they refuse to acknowledge that perhaps God is involved. They refuse to acknowledge that maybe it's a consequence, that God's allowing this to all happen. They're like, you know what? It's, it's just a coincidence. It's just bad luck. And so it seems that's how some of the Philistines were thinking. Some were thinking, you know what? Maybe this is God. Maybe this is a judgment of God. Others are like, you know what? Perhaps it's just a coincidence. Now, the interesting thing is, is what the priest said back in verse 6. Chapter 6, verse 6. Look at it again. It says, why then would you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh? Now, we, we remember the story. It actually happened centuries before this, but we can read the story in Exodus chapters 6 through 10. And in, this, in these chapters, we see, that, we see this interchange that goes on where Moses goes to Pharaoh and he warns Pharaoh that, that, if, that if Pharaoh doesn't let his people go, well, then, then he's going to have to face the consequences. He's going to have to face God's judgment. There's going to be all these different plagues. Well, sure enough, Pharaoh doesn't take the warning. He refuses to let the people go. And so one by one, the plagues come. 
One plague after another plague after another plague. And yet, after a while, it seems like perhaps Pharaoh is having a change of heart. Because all of a sudden, he's like, you know, fine, okay, I, I give, I cry uncle. I'll give you whatever you want. Go ahead, and, and, and you, you can go. But then all of a sudden, we read these words. In Exodus chapter 8, verse 15, it says, But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart. Now, we read in the book of Exodus that this happened five different times. Five different times Pharaoh would harden his heart. He would harden his heart and harden his heart and harden his heart five different times until we come to this verse in Exodus chapter 10, verse 27, where it says, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now, this time it's a different Hebrew word. All the other times, one Hebrew word was used, but now all of a sudden, Hebrews, I'm sorry, in Exodus chapter uh, 10, verse 27, a different Hebrew word, the Hebrew word shachaz is being used, which is a word that means to make firm, to make strong, to make it lasting, to make it permanent. It, it, it paints the picture of, 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 of concrete. When you pour the concrete, you know, it's like mud, but then it, 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 it sets, it hardens, and it's firm, it's lasting, it's permanent at that point. And that's the picture here. The, the idea is that Pharaoh hardened his own heart over and over and over. I mean, time after time, he had opportunity after opportunity to repent, to choose God, to, to give in to God's will. And yet time after time, he rejected God. And every time he rejected God, his heart got harder and harder and harder until finally the sixth time, it's as if God was like, okay, fine. You want a hard heart? I'll give you a hard heart. I'll give you what you're asking for. And I'll set it in stone. I'll make it firm. It'll be lasting. So this reminds us, listen, God will honor your free choice. You can choose to reject him, but if you choose to reject him, every time you choose to reject him, the harder and harder your heart gets. And if you're not careful, he might actually give you what you're asking for. He might actually set your choice in stone and make it firm. And so the, 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 the priests of the Philistines, they're saying, hey, listen, let's, let's learn from Pharaoh's mistake. Let's not harden our hearts toward God. Let's learn from him his, his mistake. But ultimately, unfortunately, the Philistines, they, they, they don't learn from the mistake. They do harden their hearts. Because again, yeah, there were some who were like, yeah, you know, maybe this is the hand of God. Maybe this is the judgment of God. But others are like, you know, Maybe there is no God. Maybe there's nothing to worry about. Maybe it's just a coincidence. And so now we see that the ark returns back to its rightful place, to the right people. But as we pick it up in verse 13, down to the end of the chapter, we see that the right people had the wrong hearts. And so verse 13, it says, Now the people of Bet Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw the ark and they rejoiced. And the ark came into the field of Joshua of Bet Shemesh and stopped there. And a great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and they set them up on the great stone. And the men of Bet Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza. You might have heard of something called the Gaza Strip. 
One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, and one for Gath, and one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of the, of the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. Great, the great stone beside which the, that they had set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Bet Shemesh. And he struck some of the men of Bet Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. And the men of Bet Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, and to whom shall he go up away from us? Now, I want to uh, point out a discrepancy uh, back there in, in verse 20. Now, in, in verse 20, in the English Standard Version that we just read from, it, it says that he struck 70 men of them. 70 men died. But if you're reading from the, the New American Standard Bible or perhaps the New King James Version, yours would read differently. In fact, let me show you the New King James Version. In the New King James Version, it says he struck 50,070 men. Now, some of you are looking at me. You're like, you know, I wasn't a math major, but that doesn't add up. I mean, the math is not mathing. You know, it just, it doesn't add up. You're like, you know, what's up with that? What gives? Well, language experts Kiel and Dilchich point out in their commentary that, that, that the Hebrew grammar here, not just the Hebrew words, but the Hebrew grammar here can mean 70 out of 50,000. That out of the, the 50,000 who may have been living in Bet Shemesh, 70 of them were struck dead. 50, I'm sorry, 70 out of 50,000. Look, we, we look at this and we're like, you know, on the one hand, this makes sense that, that God would strike the Philistines. I mean, they were the enemy of, of, of the people of God. And, 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 and they conquered the people of God and, 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 they, and, they, and they captured the ark. In fact, they thought that they had conquered God himself. So it makes sense that God would strike them down. But then we read that God struck down his own people. And we're like, well, well why would God do that? Why would God strike down his own people? Well, there was two reasons. Reason number one, because they had blatantly disregarded the word of God. And the instructions in God's word in the Bible as to handle, as to how to handle the ark. For example, Exodus chapter 30, verse 10. Exodus chapter 30, verse 10 tells us that only one person, the high priest, was ever allowed to touch the ark of the covenant. And only one person that the high priest was ever allowed to look inside the Ark of the Covenant, and that he was only allowed to do one time out of the whole year. It's called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Well, now we just read that the, 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 the men of Bet Shemesh, at least 70 of them, looked inside the Ark, and that's why they died. They blatantly disregarded what God's Word said about the Ark. Now, number two as we'll see in the next chapter, that, that Samuel tells the, 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 the people of Israel to put away their foreign gods, put away their foreign idols. That's so what this is telling us, is that, is that the Jewish people, the, the people of God, they were also worshiping the idols that the Philistines worshiped. They were worshiping pagan idols. In fact, the context that we just read seems to imply that they actually took out those, those golden figurines, the, the, the tumors and, and the... And the um, and the other thing, the mice, thank you, the rats. I was like, what? first service, you know, my, my brain was sharp. Second service, it's starting to fade. Bear with me. 
Who are we again? No. So but they, they took out these golden figurines and, 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 and they placed them on that rock like it was an altar. And it's as if when they offered sacrifices to the Lord, they were also offering sacrifices to those golden figurines, those idols. And, and, and so what we have is, is, is on the one hand, these are people who claimed to be the people of God, worshipers of the living God. But at the same time, they were worshiping pagan idols along with God. In the same way, let me ask you do, you, do you know anybody, you have somebody in your life who, who has no problem going out drinking and partying on Saturday, but somehow they make it to church every Sunday for worship? It's like they got one foot in the world and one foot in the church. Can I tell you that, that perhaps the most miserable of all people is the compromised Christian, the backslidden believer? Why? Well, because they have just enough God in them to be miserable at the party but just enough of the world in them to be miserable at church. And it's the miserable of, of all existence. And so that's the Jewish people here in Bet Shemesh. Because the, the, the people of God are, are living like pagans around them, they now are being judged and they die like the pagans around them. That if you're going to live like the pagans, you might die like the pagans. And now with that, we finish chapter 6 and also chapter 7, where we see what it looks like to turn your heart to God. So verse 21 of chapter 6, it says, So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jarim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. The men of Kiriath-Jarim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it up to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated Eleazar to have charge of the Ark of the Lord. From, from, from the day that the Ark lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time had passed, some 20 years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods of Ashtaroth uh, from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashroth, and they served the Lord only. And then Samuel said, Gather all, the, all of Israel at Mitzvah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mitzvah, and they drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day. And they said, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mitzvah. Now, when the Philistines had heard that the, that the people of Israel gathered at Mitzvah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel, and, and when the people of Israel heard about it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us out of the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took up a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to, to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him. And as, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mitzvah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far below as Betkar. Then Samuel took a, a stone and set it up between Mitzvah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and, and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had, had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was also peace between Israel and the Amorites. 
Samuel judged all of Israel the, all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mitzvah. And, and, and he judged Israel in all those places. And, and, and he returned to Ramah, for his home was there, and there he would judge Israel. And he built there an altar to the Lord. I think the key in, in, in chapter 7 is at the beginning of the chapter in verse 3 where, where Samuel cries out and says, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods, uh, the, the Ashtoreth from you, and direct your hearts to the Lord, and he will save you from the Philistines. He'll save you from your enemy. Now, the, the word returning, when he says, if you are returning, it's the Hebrew word, sabaim. And really, it's the Old Testament version of the New Testament word, repent. Now, what does it mean to repent? Well, well to repent means to, to do an about face. It means to, to, to do a 180. It means to, 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 to turn away from the current lifestyle that you're currently living in, turn away from that, and turn back to the Lord. To, to repent, to turn your life back to the Lord. So now in these chapters before us this morning, we have two different groups of people. We have one group uh, that the enemies of God, the Philistines, who frankly wanted nothing to do with God, that is, until the bottom dropped out, then they cried out to God. But then we have another group, the Jewish people, the people of God, who frankly were living like the enemies of God. And so they too faced the judgment of God. And so ultimately, these chapters show us the difference between remorse versus repentance. The difference between remorse versus repentance. So what is the difference? Well, we have the Philistines. We have the enemies of God. Here they are. They don't want anything to do with God. But at the same time, they wanted God to solve their problems. And we all have people in our lives, they, they want nothing to do with God. They don't want to give their life to God. They don't want to live for him, but they do want God to take away their pain. They don't want God in their life, but they do want God to remove their problems. But then as soon as the pain is gone, as soon as the suffering is gone, they don't want anything to do with God. It's kind of like a jailhouse conversion. Now we're all familiar with jailhouse conversions, right? Well, just in case you're not, let me, let me read the official def definition. This is from the Urban Dictionary. <laughs> Some of you are like, the what? Uh, the Urban Dictionary says a jailhouse conversion is a, a, a sudden shift in belief systems, usually finding Jesus after a period of incarceration. Usually it's just a ploy for leniency with the legal system. And we've all seen this, right? You know, someone who, who you know, uh, uh, some prison inmate who, who, who's all about Jesus, that is, until he's free, until he gets out. And then when he gets out, he goes right back to his old life. He goes right back to his old life of crime. It's, it's the stereotypic jailhouse conversion. It doesn't mean that every jailhouse conversion is stereotypic, but we've all seen this, right? Well, that was the Philistines. I mean, at the end of chapter 5, they cry out to God. Their, their cry could be heard up to heaven. They cry out to God in chapter 5, but it was more like a jailhouse conversion. They were more like Pharaoh that we read about back in, in Exodus chapter 8, verse 15, where it says that, that, that Pharaoh, when he saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart. In the same way with the Philistines. When, 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 when the pain stopped, when the problem disappeared, when their circumstances changed, their hearts changed as well. And so that would be an example of remorse. But then the Bible talks about godly sorrow. For example, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, it says, For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. 
So we have godly sorrow and we have worldly sorrow. Now, what's the difference? What's the difference between godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow? Well, worldly sorrow is, is, is that you're sorry that you got caught. You're sorry that you're in pain. You're sorry that you're suffering. You're sorry that you're facing the consequences. Whereas godly sorrow is that you're sorry enough to change. You're sorry enough to change. And so there's two lessons from these chapters before us this morning. Lesson number one comes from the enemies of God, the Philistines, who it seemed that, that, that the harder things got, the harder they got. Every time they rejected God, they got harder and harder toward God. And it just reminds us that, that, that every time you choose not to repent, every time you choose to reject God, your heart is getting harder and harder every time you reject him. Romans chapter 13, verse 11 uh, gives us this. It says, knowing the time that now is high time to awake out of your sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. In effect, it's saying, you know what? Time's running out. It's getting late early. The, the, you, you don't have all the time. Lord, quit putting it off. Quit procrastinating. Choose God now. Now is the day. Today is the day of your salvation because every time you reject him, the harder you get. That's lesson number one. Lesson number two comes from the Jewish people, the, the people of God, who, who, who frankly were living like the enemy of God. And this just reminds us that, you know what? God will allow his people to live like his enemies. In other words, God will allow the believer to backslide, but not without consequence. Not without consequence. Listen, I don't know about you, but, but I can attest to this. I mean, I know this firsthand. I have been there. A lot of you know my story. You know that, that I accepted Christ at 15, almost 16 years old, my sophomore year in high school. But then by my senior year in high school, I totally rejected God. I, I backslid, and I backslid hardcore. I did like 10 years worth of sin in one year. I call it sin concentrate. And, you know, it was partying, uh, drinking, chasing women, fighting, stealing. I mean, this just goes on and on and on. And I tried to pretend like I was the life of the party, but deep down, I was just filled with guilt because the Holy Spirit was convicting me every step of the way. But frankly, I was too stubborn to give in. I was too stubborn to, 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 to repent and turn back to God. I, I just dug my heels in harder and deeper and harder. And, and, and it got to the point where I'd lose one job after another job after another job. Got to the point that I was basically homeless, just, just couch surfing. And when I wasn't sleeping in someone's basement or on their couch, I was sleeping in my car. And then it got to the point, you know, you know I'd feel bad. I, I, I would talk about, you know, turning my life around, getting right with God, but I never did. And then I would just go harder and harder and deeper and deeper to the point that I went to jail two or three different times. And then again, I, I would feel bad. I, I would feel guilty. I would talk about, you know, getting right and turning back to God, but, but it never happened. I just kept getting worse and worse and deeper and deeper until finally I hit rock bottom. And I got to the point where, where I truly was sorry for the condition of my life. I truly was sorry for what I've done. And I truly was sorry for what I was doing to other people. And I truly wanted to change. And that's when I came back to the Lord. Now that was back in 1989, and I've been walking with him since. But listen, the truth is he allows the believer to backslide, but the good news is that he allows the backslider the chance to repent. He gives you the opportunity to repent, just as we see here in this chapter. The people of Bet Shemesh, Samuel says to them, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, put away your foreign gods from among you. 
turn to him, direct your heart to the Lord. And so what happens? Well, in verse 6, they cry out and they say, we have sinned against the Lord. And so maybe you've turned your back. Maybe you've, maybe you've backslidden. Maybe you've turned your life away from the Lord. He's giving you yet another opportunity to repent, to turn away from your current lifestyle and turn back to him with your whole heart. You gotta leave everything behind, the, 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 the women, the fighting, the drinking, the, the, the anger, all, hell has to stay there and give everything back to him. Listen to this. It says in Joel chapter two, verses 12 and 13, it says, now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and so rend your heart, not your garments, and return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. You see, so many of us, when, when, when you're like I was all those years ago, when you've turned your back on God and you've turned away from God, we get to that point where we want to come back to God, but we're afraid he's going to judge us. We're afraid of, of wrath. We're afraid of what's going to happen. And the truth of the matter is he wants to love you. He wants to embrace you. He wants to be merciful to you. It says he is slow to anger and of great kindness. There's a passage in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians, it says that, that it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. And so if you've strayed, if you've turned your back on him, the Bible says today is the day of your salvation. Understand, every time you reject him, every time you turn your back on him, the harder and harder you get. Today is the day. Amen? So Father, we thank you for, for, for these pages that we've read this morning. We thank you that this is thousands of years old, but it's your fresh word for the hard-hearted today. And maybe you're here in this place today, and maybe this is your day. Maybe you, you, you had a relationship with the Lord, but things happened. Someone you loved died. Someone you loved left you. You got hurt. This happened, that happened. Maybe it was just outright rebellion or whatever it was, but you found yourself with one foot in this world, and, and a half a foot in with him. And today needs to be the day. Don't put it off. Don't allow your heart to get hard. Today is the day. He wants to embrace you with his love. He's slow to anger and of great kindness. But for you to receive it, you have to repent. For you to receive the forgiveness, you have to turn away from where you are and totally turn back to him right here right now. If that's you, pray with me. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Forgive me from turning away from you, for turning my heart against you. But Lord, right here, right now, I turn away from where I'm at, and I turn my heart totally back to you. Right here, right now, I am yours from this day forward. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the Calvary Brighton Podcast. To find out more about our ministry in Brighton, Colorado, go to calvarychapelbrighton.com.